We've been talking a lot about private space flight recently, but what does one need to do to prepare to be an astronaut? Well, to try and find out, we're joined by Laura Forzik, who released a book earlier this year called Becoming Off-Worldly, Learning from Astronauts to Prepare for Your Spaceflight Journey. And get in touch with your thoughts at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. Or leave us a review on your podcast platform. We're a space podcast. We need more stars. But right now, enjoy episode 91 of the Space and Things Podcast. Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 91 of the Space and Things podcast. This week, I'm in Florida working for the Celestius Media team as we prepare to launch. We're not launching aboard, but our payload is aboard a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. So Dave will be taking care of the news himself, but we did find time to speak to Laura Forsick to talk about her new book, Becoming Offworldly, Learning from Astronauts to Prepare for Your Spaceflight Journey. We figured that we've been talking a lot about commercial spaceflight recently, and technically we got offered a flight ourselves by the guys <laughs> from Think Orbital. I'm claiming it. Me too. <laughs> so it's only proper that we start thinking about what we need to do to prepare. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this book is the manual. Laura has got the inside scoop on the lesser-known spaceflight training and preparation. Yep, Laura is a space scientist and analyst who has her own dreams of going to the moon. In 2016, she founded Astrolytical, a research, consulting, and publishing firm for which she has assisted a number of companies, governments, organizations, and individuals to pursue their space ambitions. Laura has also taken part in microgravity flights, climbed into a meteor crater and even trained to become a commercial astronaut. So, let's find out more. We have, we have no intention of competing with the professionals, believe me. Laura, so welcome to our podcast and thank you uh, so much for joining us. Before we get onto the book, let's go right back to the beginning. So, what was it or what were the things that made you want to pursue a life in the space industry? Thank you so much for having me. So I have loved space since I was a kid, like most of your audience, I'm sure. I have a story that I wrote in third grade about going to the moon. I must have read something about the Apollo, you know, something back in in school um, that inspired that. I had a whole mission planned out. And when I was choosing what to do with my career, I was like, I love the stars. I want to figure out what's in our beautiful universe. I had pictures of Hubble on my bedroom window when I was, or my bedroom walls when I was a kid. I was that kind of geek. So I decided to major in astrophysics. And then one thing led to another and I, I moved on to planetary science and then to the industry where I have been working for myself. I started my own company six years ago and do a wide diversity of things, which just makes it so much more fun. Yeah. And talking about that company, yep, as you said, 2016, you founded Astrolytical. What was it that made you decide to form your own company? And what do you see as being the key successes of that company so far? I call myself an accidental entrepreneur. So I'm a scientist. <laughs> I was not trained in business, but the company I worked for was a startup. And as we all know, startups are risky. And that one just happened to not make it. 
And in fact, I was just weeks away from giving birth to my first child when I was clearing out the office at Kennedy Space Center. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm about to become a mom. I'm not going to go look for a (laughs) full-time job right now. So Astrolytical started as a a way for me to do initially part-time consulting while I figured out what my next moves were. And that was six years ago. (laughs) And I'll (laughs) tell you though, the business learning curve was was tough. I I had to learn the hard way and still learn the hard way about how to run a business. Um, But, you know, it's going strong now. I'm really happy with the way that I get to work with all kinds of people, all different kinds of clients from, you know, startups is my largest sector along with um, government agencies and non Profits, education, investors, even sci-fi. Oh yes, I like that. Like the sound of that. Awesome. So what kind of thing are you doing in the sci-fi world? Oh gosh, all kinds of things. So whatever is space related, if it's within my area of expertise, I help out. So I don't know if you're particularly interested in sci-fi. I haven't done in in about two years, but previously I worked with a major streaming company that was trying to put together an idea for a TV series that I don't think ever actually happened, <laughs> having to do with setting up on the moon. Um, And that was just fun because I got to imagine how people would live and work on the moon in the future. Yes, that sounds amazing. I want that job. Yeah, 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 pretty cool, right? I wish (laughs) that had gone forward. (laughs) (laughs) If there's any TV series listening that want to hire me, I'm (laughs) I'm always available. (laughs) So now on to the new book, Becoming Offworldly is its title. So when did you decide that this book needed to be written and how did you get it started? At the end of writing my first book, I'm like, you know, I have this idea for a second one. And am I crazy enough to write a second book? Because for anyone who's ever tried to write a book, it is a labor of love. It is definitely hours and hours and hours and hours for not that much compensation. It is a (laughs) lot of hard work. And I was pretty burnt out after that first book. It took me a long time to write the first one and to get up the courage to publish uh, because you really put your writing out there. You, Emily, are a writer. Dave, you're a musician. So you know how uh, hard it is to put yourself out there. But I had this idea. I'm like, I want to go and be an astronaut. And all I've read about being an astronaut is comes from the government perspective. It comes from the idea that you can train, you can do the physical things, but it doesn't really cover all of the different ways that astronauts who have been up there experience space flight. So I'm like, how do I, as a person who wants to do this in the future, how do I best prepare myself? So it started out as an idea of just interviewing just a few astronauts about their experiences, specifically what surprised them. And then the more I talked to, the more I wanted to talk to other ones. I didn't want this to be (laughs) purely... Um, you know, male NASA astronauts, I wanted to encompass a wide variety of types of astronauts. So I interviewed people from NASA, from ESA, from uh, Korea, from JAXA, and private astronauts who flew with space adventures. And then as it progressed, I'm realizing there are lots of people who have actual tickets to fly to space. Um, I think Virgin Galactic is now up to something close to 800 is the last wow. time I heard from their phone call, their quarterly call. Um, Blue Origin doesn't disclose how many people have signed up, but they have been flying. So there are people who are literally ticket holders, not just people like me who want to, but people who actually are going. And I'm like, I want to talk to these people too. So I interviewed them about, um, you know, what is it that encourage you or why put your life on the line literally to fly to space. And so I talked to people who, um, for example, Wally Funk, who had 
I've been waiting 60 years. I interviewed her before her uh, flight where she was still waiting and she'd been waiting. And then I interviewed her after her flight as well, just to get that perspective of, oh my gosh, finally you flew and, and what it felt like for her. And I interviewed other people who are well-known in the industry. Dylan Taylor, I interviewed him. Um, he was waiting for his flight at that time. Um, as the book was finishing was when he flew. So I got a little blurb from him saying, you nice. know, what it was like, but, you know, just people who are, are literally either paying or being sponsored. For example, there's a chapter about science in there. People are sponsored by NASA or by universities to fly uh, to suborbital space specifically. Um, or I interviewed two of the Inspiration4 uh, crew members, and they too were doing science. And, and one of them was the, the founder who was able to sponsor it, and one of them um, was someone who was sponsored. And so just to get that different perspective, to kill that narrative of billionaire uh, you know, space tourists, because it's so much more. Yeah, that's actually something we've talked about a hell of a lot on this podcast. The idea uh, that the industry isn't perhaps very good at communicating that it is more than that, uh, and we've got to do better at it, which kind of leads on to this next question a little bit. We've had a question from one of our Patreon subscribers for you, Daniel Gillers, or Gillies. Daniel Please let me know how to pronounce your name because you've asked a few great questions over the last few weeks. I'm not sure I'm doing it right. So drop me a message. Anyway, Daniel has asked, who do you see as your target audience when you are writing this book? The general public or space enthusiasts like us? And did that vision of your audience shape the work at all? Yeah, I write the books that I wish someone else would write, but, you know, for me, for me to read, but they haven't <laughs> been written. So I'm like, okay, I guess I'll write it. Um, and so <laughs> it was really meant for an audience that already knows that it wants to fly to space and whether that's the general public or not, you know, not mm. everybody who wants to be an astronaut can dedicate like the, the time to invest in what it actually means to work in space or to fly in space. You know, maybe they're just casually interested. And so for me, it's anybody who has that dream of becoming an astronaut someday. Yeah. Certainly not only the, the billionaires or the multimillionaires. That's not my audience. My audience is really anybody who sees the change, who sees news flashes about SpaceX flying people to, to, to the International Space Station or, you know, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin flying. Anybody who sees those headlines and pictures themselves in that seat, in that capsule, in that spacecraft, that's who I wrote the book for. Well, that sounds like it's a book for me then. Right. While I've got you here, I do want to ask this question. What do you think we can do to help stop this narrative of it's just billionaires having joy rides into space? We see statements all the time from people saying they could solve world hunger if they spent all this money on space flight on the on planet Earth instead. How do you think we better communicate what's really going on? I come from a science background, so that is where my bias tends to go when answering that question because I could talk endlessly. One of my previous jobs was working on International Space Station research. I was part of a group called CASIS, which also is known as ISS National Lab. Right. Not only doing work in space, but doing work in space for the benefit of life on Earth. Yeah. And so when you talk about space station research, you can talk about the latest uh, Axiom crew that yes. did, you know, 25 experiments. They paid money to <laughs> spend all that time researching <laughs> in space. Or you can talk about the, the suborbital flyers that'll be flying soon, or even the one that flew last year. It's really underreported, but there was a the very first science done on a suborbital flight that was human tended. So there was a person on that Virgin Galactic flight, Sarisha Bamla. She is a Virgin Galactic employee and she did an experiment for the University of Florida. In fact, your previous episode 
episode as of this recording was interviewing that same team of University of Florida. Um, they blew, they grew plants in uh, true life lunar regolith, not the fake stuff. And they had also done that experiment last year, uh, flying on Virgin Galactic, flying a, a plant biology experiment in suborbital spaceflight. And so just emphasizing the really awesome stuff that can be done in space while also talking about like the inspirational stuff of, you know, I, I talk a lot about Frank White's overview of fact. He wrote the, uh, mm. the, the intro of the, the forward for my book. I'm really thankful for that because I'm so inspired by that. Not everyone experiences the overview of fact and not everyone experiences it in the same way, but there's no doubt about it. it. It can change a lot of people. And I myself would love to have that experience. So there's this psychology in there too of if you fly you know, not talking about 600 people that have flown in the past 60 years, but if you start flying thousands of people, how is that going to change their perspective about the world, the human population, our planet, the environment, etc.? Okay. Absolutely. That uh, brings us to our next question. Now, you've interviewed a number of astronauts in writing this book, and obviously they, they've talked about the overview effect and things like that, probably. Uh, were there any things that surprised you in their answers about what it takes to, to be prepared to be an astronaut as well? There were a lot of surprises. So two of the chapters that I, I wrote about were things I didn't think I'd write about. One, floating in microgravity, and two, um, <laughs> launch. And so I'm like, don't we all know? Don't we all know that launch is intense and that it's hard to float in microgravity? But no, like just the way that you prepare for that, you can't you can't actually simulate that very well on Earth. Right. And so therefore, there's no true way to prepare yourself for a launch or for uh, you know, how to adjust to microgravity, how to work and move and, and do experiments or even eat in microgravity. Um, so all of that are things that surprise to the astronauts that I interviewed because there's no true way to prepare for it. I've gone on those parabolic flights where you are 25 seconds weightless per parabola. and I know how hard it is to control your body just, just during that time, but you can't adequately get that level of comfort and balance. And there's a difference between the full zero G, the full free fall that you feel in space versus the 25 seconds and then the two G that you feel afterwards and, and that back and forth transition. So that's different. And then just living your life, like you can't sleep on one of those planes, right? <laughs> so it's different. You've got launch simulators. I've gone through centrifuge training at the NASTAR Center outside of Philadelphia. Oh, and nice. that was really awesome. It gave me the the really great feeling of the, the intense G-forces in multiple directions. But until you're actually on a spacecraft, you don't know how it jolts and how the sounds feel, the vibrations and the jingling of the metal and all of that. So um, really excellent interviews by several astronauts who were able to truly describe it. Another thing would be like disorientation, how you get lost on the International Space Station. So imagine you in the future, you've got a space hotel, right? This is pretty far in the future. We're not there yet. But imagine you have a space hotel. I'm the kind of person who gets lost in a normal hotel. <laughs> like I, I'm like, where's my room? Where, where's that elevator? I don't know where I'm going. But <laughs> If you have a space hotel, there is no up and down. Ceiling, floor, walls, they're all the same. So imagine how disoriented you'd be if suddenly you're twisted the wrong way. You're coming from things at a different direction. There's no real true way to orient yourself except maybe visually. And now we're working to see tactilely in other ways that we could maybe orient ourselves. So things like that. So many surprises. Within all the training exercise you did, did you ever do any of the virtual reality 
things, you know, the headsets you put over your eyes and so you're immersed in the world. Because I tried one of these recently and it, I was on the International Space Station moving around and I had to stop after about 10 minutes because I was getting motion sickness and I was just sitting in one place. I know it's not the same as actually floating around, but I'm just wondering whether you tried any of that. I'm with you. I actually started to get a little sick. No, I've only tried it with some of the older versions. I haven't tried some of the newer versions, but yeah, I think it's um, really good possibility that we still need to work on because if I can't use it too much here on the ground, imagine how astronauts training, you know, hours every day before their flights might get disoriented or, or have some kind of, dis, you know, it, it's really cool tech. I'm looking forward to seeing that work out. Absolutely. Yeah, let's just create like a holodeck. Let's do that. Yeah. yeah. This is a part of the podcast that Dave is probably going to edit out, but, um, <laughs> oh God. And he's going to know why shortly. I was in the uh, Skylab uh, at Houston <laughs> Space Center, Houston. I was trying to orient myself in there. It's sort of like, okay, this is where I would actually be positioned if I was doing this, et cetera, et cetera. And I was actually sort of making myself sick doing that. And I realized like, oh gosh, you know, your perspective in, in an actual space would be completely different from what it would be on Earth, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I can only go by the descriptions of like... It, Katie Coleman was the one who really truly described this. She described it in terms of a football field. And you have to read the book because I can't even I can't even duplicate what she said. It's so complex because all the different nodes that go off all different directions. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking forward to the challenge of it. <laughs> I want to get lost in space. That's my challenge. That's that's what I want. My goal in life now is to get lost in space. <laughs> yes, me too. I'd love that. And that actually brings me on to my next question rather nicely. So you've been for all this training to become a private astronaut. So Laura. When is your flight? Yeah, I will absolutely say yes to any one of your listeners who has that kind of funding to sponsor <laughs> me. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, we're all in the same boat there, right? <laughs> anyway, what is next for you? The book is out. So what comes next? So I have a revision of my first book that I'm in the works. My first book, uh, Rise of the Space Age Millennials. At the time I did the interviews, um, millennials were... Um, ranging from about 18 to mid 30s at the time I did the, those interviews. So now that Generation Z is adulthood. Yeah. I actually started interviewing um, some members of Generation Z to tie them into my book. So I'm looking forward to that. I have an idea for a third book. <laughs> so becoming off-worldly at the last chapter, I talk about all the ways in which spaceflight has been limited so far. Uh, so many different groups have been excluded. Only about a quarter of the countries of the world have ever sent any one representative to space. Mm. Um, people People with disabilities, people with certain health conditions, um, the older people. You know, we saw in the past year, we've got Wally Funk and William Shatner fly in their older age. I mean, there's just so many people who have been historically excluded, not to mention you know, gender, race, ethnicity, etc. And so one of the themes that in that book, in that last chapter, um, I want to expand into a whole third book. <laughs> and that is um, making space accessible for people with disabilities. Nice. A huge segment of the population. And every one of us either is or could become disabled at any time, either mm. permanently or temporarily. In fact, I myself have had laser eye surgery. So in a sense, that um, poor eyesight <laughs> was a disability that was corrected by contacts and glasses and now by surgery. And so there are ways that we as a society adapt to include people with disabilities, I think is incredibly important and just as much in spaceflight. So there's a group called Mission Astro Access, which I mentioned at the end of my previous book that I'm starting to work with to create this new book. No idea when this is going to come out. I'm a little burnt out right now, so give me some time. I also have a three-month-old baby in addition to my other kids, so I'm still <laughs> taking some time. I still need to record the audio versions too, but again, I have a baby, so <laughs> that'll happen someday. 
Yeah, you're you're a little busy. I I completely <laughs> get it. The, having a having a new baby is a is a is a full time job. So with everything that's going on in the in the spaceflight world right now, we've got breaking stories all the time and brand new discoveries. What is the story that's gotten you most excited recently? I'm really excited about Artemis. I am really mm. looking forward to returning to the moon. If you remember my origin story, that's what I wanted, right? Yeah. I wanted to go to the moon. And and me as a third grader did not connect the fact that it was all men on that mission. So I'm really looking forward to seeing a woman, a person of color, diversity on the lunar surface. And then hopefully funding and political will might come together so we can have a permanent base on the moon. And yes, I want to see us go to Mars and beyond, but the moon is where my heart is. I, I myself want to go to the moon. I volunteer with a group called For All Mankind, which wants to preserve the heritage sites on the surface of the moon. And I think that is just so worthwhile. So I myself want to, you know, either physically go there or in some way help protect the, the boot prints and the, the, the equipment that we left behind, the photographs, you know, like whatever it yeah. is that connects humanity beyond the surface of our planet, I think is truly very important, not to mention protecting our own planet. So if I could just add a second one in there, it would be making sure that we're good stewards of our orbital environment, just like we should be good stewards of our whole planet. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. You know, the whole preservation of the Apollo lunar sites is something that really fascinates me. As someone who's been around to so many of the air and space museums, which holds the artifacts we've got on the Earth, the fact that there's all that stuff up on the moon and there's a chance to perhaps bring something back and display it in a museum for us all to see, that fascinates me. But at the same time, I'm like, shouldn't those sites be preserved? And I know there's some conversation about maybe not going and touching any of the sites or not a couple of them, but walking into some of the other ones and bringing something back. What's your thought process on this as someone who's involved with For All Mankind, this organization that, that's looking into it? So there's a whole field called space archaeology. So I will defer to those space archaeologists who have <laughs> studied this. But me personally, I want to create those museums on the bin. Yes. Why take them back? That's oh. what we do historically, right? We're colonizers, <laughs> right? We take things from where they were and we put them in museums as colonizers. Maybe we need to rethink that and create a whole new culture on the moon. What a great answer. What a That's awesome. I, I can't answer. really think of anything to add to that. Such a great answer. Anyway, Laura, if people are listening to this today and thinking, I want to buy Becoming Offworldly, or they've already read it perhaps, and they want to engage further in these conversations with you, what's the best way of doing this? After the book was created, I realized I still wanted to talk about these things and I wanted to talk about them with other people. So I created a community, an online community called Becoming Offworldly Together. You can find it on becomingoffworldly.com along with a blog that goes with it. And we are not only working together to support each other during our preparation for spaceflight, each one of us wants to go, but we're also discussing ideas that are important to human spaceflight. So that might be, you know, one of the latest topics is is, you know, disabilities in space, but also things like, um, you know, should we be working with the Russians? And um, what's the most, you talked about the narrative of the billionaires in space flight, you know, how do we change that narrative to talk more about what's really going on, you know, those kinds of topics. So if you're interested, going to uh, go to becomingoffworldly.com and we'd love to have you. That sounds like my kind of space. I think I'm going to head over there right now. Yeah, me too. So Laura, thank you so much for joining us. This has been wonderful. I'm sure we'll talk to you again sometime, but good luck with all you've got coming up. Thanks again for having me. Oh, I love it. I love it. All right. That was pretty amazing, wasn't it? Loved that. Yes, that was a very uh, inspirational talk. I've, I've been a fan of Hertz for years, and I followed Laura on Twitter for a 
bro, God, a long time. I think we've met once in person like 10 years ago or so. And I've always been, you know, a fan of what she's, you know, doing. She's an incredible advocate. And uh, I especially like what she discussed at the, at the end of our interview about, you know, advocating for people who have disabilities, you know, going to space and pursuing, you know, aerospace careers, because that really is an area that we've only recently got into. You know, only in the last year have we seen someone who, you know, has an internal prosthesis go to space and you know, we've only seen in the last year, I, I wouldn't classify them as, as people with disabilities by any stretch because Wally Funk is probably more fit than I'll ever be. But um, yeah. we've seen, you know, octogenarians and, and, you know, and I think uh, William Shatner is in his 90s and he went to space. So we've seen that. We need to open the access to people who have different abilities. It doesn't mean that they can't be effective in space or they can't do a good job in space or something like that. I mean, I'm talking a wide range of different abilities. You know, I'm talking about, you know, yeah. people who are hearing impaired, people who might be visually impaired even, you know, I mean, just because you might be blind doesn't mean you can't do other things, you know, I mean, so that's really something I'm glad she's discussing because we really, if we're to open the high frontier to everybody, we really need to think about that. We really need to consider that. Yep, yep, we do. Hey, look, I'm wearing my yeah, High Frontier t-shirt right now. I'm on brand. Ah, I'm on that's brand. That's awesome. I have my O'Neill right by me, man. He's always staring. <laughs> when do you not have that book next no, to you? No, he's always, he's always, look at him, he's intense. <laughs> he's like, you will, he's like, you will go to space now. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you've always got that book next to you. Anyway, this book written by Laura, I, I'm really interested in. I've read the first couple of chap chapters. I would like to read more of it. I'm going to read more of it. At the moment, I'm having to read a lot of other books. More about that later this month, maybe. But this book really excites me because it's for people like me and you, Emily, who want to go to space. And it tells the story that we want to hear and we want to find out about. Yeah. Regular people who want to go to space. Not, not necessarily, you know, somebody who's a career astronaut, although... I'm sure it would help to have that background, but somebody who doesn't have 20 PhDs and, you know, or something yeah. like that, somebody who's just interested in going to space to create an off-worldly industry, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? For those people who don't follow Laura on social media, you really should. If you're interested in space, you absolutely should. You know, she operates, in my opinion, she operates on a different level, definitely to me. You know, her head's just able to focus on things in ways that I can't. You know, she's a scientist. Yep. She's written two books, about to start a third, as well as doing revision on her first. She's got so much going on. She's a consultant. She's got her own business. There's so much going on, and I've got so yeah. much respect for anyone who's managing to do that much. She's got a head that works very differently from mine. You know, I'm one of those people, I could only do one thing at a time, and she's, yeah, doing, all, yeah. and she's doing all this, and I, I just, and she's doing it brilliantly, and we need to, and and she's a woman who's doing it as well, which to me is awesome because we need to see, you know, more of that of, you know, just women being bosses and, and doing these things in the space industry. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, I didn't think of it in those terms, but you're absolutely spot on there. So, listeners, 
go and check out Laura on social media. Go and have a look at the Becoming Off-Worldly community that she talked about there. That sounds great as well. And read the book. Let us know what you think about it. If you have read the book, uh, I'd love to hear your opinions on it. And let us know your plans on how you intend to be ready to become off-worldly. I think that's such a cool concept. Um, As always, the full interview is up on our Patreon page, although you've pretty much had the full thing here. But if you want to see Emily and... Uh, my reaction to what was being said, go and watch the video on our Patreon page. Get involved on patreon.com forward slash space and things. And from every window, we have a really spectacular view of the Earth and as well as the, uh, what surprised me, the real, real blackness of space. I don't think I've ever seen black as it is out here. Okay, so a brief summary of the news stories while Emily is away. I'm on my own for this bit. There have been five launches since our last podcast, including the SpaceX Falcon 9 from Kennedy Space Center, which has carried the payload for Celestius, which Emily is working for. Very cool, and it's been wonderful to experience this through her, and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about this next week. There have been two other launches at Kennedy Space Center in the last week, as well as one in China and one in Russia, and as As always, there will be full details of payloads and videos where available in the show notes. Go and find them at our website, which is www.spaceandthingspodcast.com or just click on the link in your podcast platform. Now, the launch of note amongst these launches is the launch of the Atlas V rocket, which is carrying Boeing's Starliner capsule. Now, we've been talking about this for almost a year now, but it's finally happened. This is the second launch of a Starliner capsule. The first one was a few years back, and it failed to meet the objectives and had to return to Earth early. This second flight, a test flight, has been delayed many times due to various issues, but mostly within the valves of the propulsion system. But this has finally launched, and it arrived at the International Space Station about 24 hours after launch, and has since docked. As I'm recording this, it has just landed back on Earth with a landing at the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. However, this mission hasn't been 100% successful. There's been a few problems with that propulsion system, but it does appear that enough may have been done for NASA to certify this spacecraft for human flight, and that could mean we'll see a launch in the fourth quarter of this year carrying a crew to the International Space Station. Elsewhere, the James Webb Space Telescope has practiced tracking a moving asteroid for the first time, which is one of the final tests in the commissioning period for the telescope, which means it's nearly set to start science observation, which is very exciting. Also, the Artemis 1 rocket, which we've talked about so much this year already, will be heading back out to the launch pad early in June for a second wet dress rehearsal to take place a couple of weeks after it's rolled out. And NASA is still hoping to launch the rocket for the first time this summer. We shall see, as NASA has also announced launch windows for which this mission could be completed right up until June 2023. So we might have to wait a little while yet, hopefully not. Next up, the Voyager 1 spacecraft has been sending back some rather peculiar signals. Now, 
We did a podcast about this in January. This is a spacecraft which is 45 years old and is still flying in interstellar space, which is a high radiation environment outside our solar system where no spacecraft had ever been before. So as I said, it's confusing the ground team by sending back some strange data about where it is. It's unsure whether this is a system error or whether it's something a little stranger, but with certain systems having to be turned off to save power and the fact that this spacecraft was actually only supposed to last for four years, but it's managed 45. It actually feels like this most likely an instrumentation problem. Voyager 2 is still behaving normally, though. So what makes this extra challenging is that it actually takes 20 hours for any message to be sent to those spacecraft. And then you have to wait another 20 hours if you want to hear back from it. So if you're just trying to do a small fix, you have to wait a long time to find out whether it's worked or not. Closer to home, NASA has suspended all but the most urgent of spacewalks on the International Space Station after water was found in an astronaut's helmet after an excursion in March. So obviously they're going to go and try and figure out what's happened here before they allow anyone else to put the suit on. Of course, this has happened before and almost led to a disaster in which European Space Agency astronaut Luca Palmitano ended up with water covering most of his face during a spacewalk in 2013. The story of that is absolutely crazy. Check it out if you haven't heard of that before. So hopefully they can get this fixed as spacewalks are pretty important up there. And finally, this is a story I love. If you've ever been to Los Angeles, you may have been to the California Science Center. They've got some great artifacts there, including the Apollo Soyuz Command Module, uh, the Gemini 10 space capsule, uh, Ken Mattingly's suit from Apollo 16, and the Space Shuttle Endeavour. The shuttle has been sitting in a purpose-built hangar since it arrived in 2012. But the plan has always been to have a more elaborate building which will allow the shuttle to stand vertically in launch position. They've also got an external tank, the last one which was built for flight, and two solid rocket boosters to be mated with it. So you're going to stand underneath this thing looking up as if it's about to launch. This is going to be incredible. Well, the ground for this building is finally going to be breaking in June. And within three years we should be able to go and have a look at this. A magnificent shuttle standing there looking like it's ready to launch. I really can't wait for this. This is something I've been looking forward to for a long time since I first went there and saw the plans. So, yes, three years and we get to go. Can't wait. It was magnificent. It's uh, great to work with the world going by and being out here with a good friend, Mike Good is a pleasure. It's a real privilege to get to see what we're seeing and get to work on this magnificent machine. That's it for this week, uh, episode 91. And once again, here we are thanking you for listening and helping us to get the word out and supporting us. Uh, please continue to share the podcast with your space flight loving friends, or even if your friends don't like space flight, share it with them anyway. <laughs> Why not? And. Uh, <laughs> If you're really willing and able, we'd love for you to join us over on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash space and things. Yeah, that would be massively appreciated. You know, my mum joined recently. Thank you, mum. Love you loads. Oh, anyway, that's awesome. Yeah, that's it for this week. We'll be back with some more space and things next week. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you stream. 
Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.